KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the political transformation of Kirsten Sinema, that Democratic senator from Arizona. She's opposing filibuster reform. She's one of the two most conservative Democrats in the Senate, but she started out on the left of the party. Aida Chavez, the nation's new Washington correspondent, will report. Plus, we're still thinking about how Dr. Seuss Enterprises took six of his books out of print because they contained racist drawings. Right-wing media were pushing this story nonstop. Katha Pollitt will comment. And finally, Obama's memoir of his political rise in his first two years of office. It's called A Promised Land, and it's still number one on Amazon's bestseller list after 31 weeks. The book reminds us of a time when Donald Trump barely existed on our political landscape and in our consciousness. Eric Foner will comment on what's in the book and what Obama leaves out. But first, Bill Gates, the second richest man in the world, has spent the last 20 years giving away his money through his $50 billion foundation. The foundation is in the news lately after the divorce of Bill Gates from Melinda Gates and after Warren Buffett, another one of the world's richest men, has pulled out as a trustee of the Gates Foundation. Who exactly has the Gates Foundation been giving money to? Tim Schwab has some answers. His reports in the nation on the Gates Foundation won this year's Izzy Award. That's named after I.F. Stone and awarded by the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College for outstanding achievement in media during 2000. We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Tim Schwab, welcome to the program and congratulations on the award. Thanks so much. I couldn't have done it without the nation. Well, the big shocker in your report to me was how much the Gates Foundation has given in tax-deductible charitable donations to private companies. How much did you find? Yeah, so as you noted, I looked at all charitable grants the Gates Foundation has ever given over two decades. That's 19000 And I found more than $2 billion going to private companies, which absolutely is counterintuitive. You do not expect a charity to be making charitable donations to for-profit companies, to large multinational companies at that. What kind of private companies got the biggest contributions? Um, you're seeing um, tens of millions of dollars going to Novavax, GlaxoSmithKline, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, which uh, listeners may or may not know. But that's really part and parcel of how the Gates Foundation works is closely with Big Pharma. What could be wrong with that? Big Pharma w wants us all to be uh, healthier. Yeah, and that certainly is the Gates, Bill Gates' personal view of social change is working with and through private companies. And it's interesting, you'll find him in a number of interviews sort of debating in his head whether he's been more effective in his previous role as the head of Microsoft, through which he you know, introduced the computer revolution to the world and introduced so much social change in his mind, whether he's accomplished more through Microsoft or through giving away billions of dollars at the Gates Foundation. Um, so, you know, yeah, his view is definitely the, this idea that companies are part of the solution. They're main drivers of social change, in particular, very large companies. How can profit-making corporations receive tax-deductible charitable contributions? That, that doesn't seem right. I thought charity is supposed to help the poor, not the wealthy. 
Yeah, it, it, it's impossible to, to look at these donations and not come away with this idea that the Gates Foundation is really invested in helping the rich help the poor. That's really their model. You know, a decade ago, the Lancet, the medical journal, they did a study looking at all of the Gates Foundation's funding in global health, finding that almost all of it went to rich countries, United States, Europe, Canada. So though their money is designed to help the poor brown people in the developing world, the Gates Foundation is doing this by helping, by funding researchers and think tanks and NGOs in the, in the rich white world. But to your question about, you know, how they're able to give money, really, it's because Congress really isn't paying attention and there aren't really strict rules around how foundations operate. So as long as the Gates Foundation can demonstrate and keep paperwork that this is going towards a charitable cause or charitable ends, then it's deemed okay for them to make donations to for-profit companies. I mean, it's something that I think we should be talking about. I think that Congress could be looking at it. So Big Pharma is at the top of the list. The Gates Foundation also gives a lot of donations to media companies. That's kind of surprising. What is he after there? Well, I mean, the charitable explanation is that there's a lot of topics that the Gates Foundation is interested in that don't get a lot of press coverage, things like global health. So they want to fund NPR to do reporting on global health. So they'll give them money to do that. But in doing so, if there's a certain level of editorial influence, because you're shaping the, at the very least the topic on which these big media outlets are covering. Um, so th these are stations like NPR, but also to for-profit media companies too. But you know, a, a lot of news outlets that you and I go to have taken money from Gates over the year. It's NPR, it's ProPublica, it's Al Jazeera, it's The Guardian, it's BBC, it's on down the line. And I think it would be foolish of us, it would be foolish of us not to imagine that that financial, that those contributions don't also affect the way those media outlets cover the Gates Foundation. And I learned from your work that he also funds documentaries to be shown on TV and in movie theaters. An interesting one is Waiting for Superman. The Gates Foundation gave $2 million to participant media. We record our show in L.A., and we regard participant media as one of the good guys of Hollywood. Yeah, um, so that's a, a film that uh, very much promotes charter schools, which is a, a main agenda, agenda item of the Gates Foundation and U.S. education, uh, which are privately administered public schools. And it's just as you said, the Gates Foundation put in $2 million for the promotion of this film, which was very much in line with the Gates Foundation's policy agenda on U.S. education. So, yeah, I, I found a, a total of a quarter billion dollars that the Gates Foundation was giving to media companies, journalistic institutions. I, I don't know that that's all of their giving, but that's what we can see. And it's, it's a very sizable amount of money. I don't think we can discount the influence that has and shaping media narratives and shaping how we understand topics like global health, U.S. education. And one of the big claims of the Gates Foundation is their Africa programs. One of the lesser known ones, which was very interesting to me, was they made some contributions to help poor people in Kenya get credit cards. What's the problem there? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a kind of an illustration, again, of how they're working with uh, private companies, uh, making donations to private companies. So this is an example where the Gates Foundation made a $19 million donation to a MasterCard affiliate in 2014 to increase usage of digital financial products by poor adults in Kenya. 
you know, I talked to a, a sociologist in, in the piece and who's wondering, you know, I think MasterCard and all these financial institutions have a, a real serious financial interest in reaching the billions of unbanked people in the global South. Do they really need Gates Foundation's help? So at what point is this really charitable? And at what point is this just a corporate subsidy? And a corporate subsidy, by the way, that we're all subsidizing ourselves as taxpayers because the Gates, Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, they donate billions of dollars to their foundation and they get billions of dollars in tax tax deductions for those donations. So, you know, at a certain point, if all of us are subsidizing the Gates Foundation's work, why don't we have any say or really, <laughs> to be honest, any oversight in how they operate? Excellent question. Another one of the um, the causes supported by the Gates Foundation is intellectual property rights. Creative people should have a right to their own intellectual property. What's wrong with that? Well, where that paradox really plays out is in, is in human health and in public health. It's a real paradox that so many people die every year because they can't get access to medicines they need to treat or prevent their diseases. And a reason for that is because, you know, we have these available medicines, but they're very costly because of the pharmaceutical companies will have a monar- monopoly control over, over the market. And, you know, you're really seeing this play out right now during COVID where, you know, a handful of companies have control over the vaccines that everybody on earth needs one or two doses of. So if you're asking what the, what's the problem with, with patents, uh, I mean, you're seeing it play out right now in real time with, you know, what everyone's, I think, appropriately deeming vaccine apartheid, where the rich are getting access and the poor are not. Bill Gates often boasts that he has paid more taxes than anyone else. Uh, $10 billion, he says. But you raise an interesting question. How much does Bill Gates save in taxes by making charitable contributions? And you you try to figure this out. Yeah, so it's a point. There hasn't been a lot of scrutiny or criticism of Gates Foundation over the years, but there's been enough that buried on their frequently asked questions page at the Gates Foundation website is an acknowledgement that Bill and Melinda Gates personally do get some tax benefit from their donations. And they say it's the $36 billion they've given through 2018. The, the Gates Foundation says they've seen an 11% tax savings from that. So that's $3.5 billion. So that's a lot of money. But if you talk to independent tax experts like I did, they said that's really a gross underestimation of the tax benefits that, that they're, they're seeing. Um, and that it's probably more like a 40% tax savings or more like $14 billion. Whoa. So, I mean, yeah, Gates, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates are giving away tens of billions of dollars, but they're also seeing very serious tax savings. I think uh, anyone could, could look at this and ask, what, why, why are they really deserving of those kinds of tax benefits, especially if they're, they're giving this money away to for-profit companies? You know, it's, it's one of many areas that I think is ripe for a new look at, at the way private foundations and billionaire philanthropy works in this country. And that takes us to something called the Philanthropy Roundtable. Sounds like a fine organization. What does the Philanthropy Roundtable do? Yeah, I mean, going into this reporting project, I didn't realize what a defined special interest group the, the big philanthropy is, but it really is. It has its own trade press, its own publications. It has its own lobby groups. It has its own advocacy groups and think tanks. And what the Philanthropy Roundtable does is it advocates and lobbies on behalf of philanthropies. And it wants to basically promote a world in which the the prevailing status quo 
where there are very few regulations and uh, very little oversight over billionaire philanthropies like the Gates Foundation. So again, this is where the Gates Foundation is making charitable donations to fund the philanthropy roundtable, which whose job is to you know make sure that the the rules and regulations surrounding the Gates Foundation are friendly. And you know how is how exactly does that help us help the Gates Foundation meet its mission of making a a more just and equitable and healthy world? You know, it really seems self serving for it to be giving donations to these kinds of special interest groups that prop up the world of philanthropy. In conclusion, the Gates Foundation has declared that its mission is, quote, helping all people live healthy, productive lives and, quote, to empower the poorest in society so they can transform their lives, close quote. That sounds great. If you were writing the mission statement of the Gates Foundation, how would you put it? I've tried, you know, I wrote three articles for the nation and I've tried many, many times to engage with the Gates Foundation. I made many requests to interview Bill Gates and it's really not an institution that engages with, with public criticism, with outside viewpoints that put a critical lens on its work. And it has a reputation as being unaccountable and non-transparent. I don't know if that's its mission, but in practice, that that's how it operates. So, you know, I think if you're going to describe what the Gates Foundation is, it is the one of the most powerful, least scrutinized actors in global politics that operates with very little transparency or accountability. The Gates Foundation is a political organization that shapes public policy and media narratives. That's what Tim Schwab says. He won the Izzy Award for his reporting on the Gates Foundation. You can read his award-winning three-part series at thenation.com. Tim, congratulations again on the award, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Kirsten Sinema became the first woman Arizona ever elected to the Senate in 2018. She's also the first Democrat to win a Senate seat in Arizona in 30 years, and the first bisexual senator elected from anywhere. Since she was sworn in in 2019, she's made a name for herself by opposing the $15 minimum wage as part of Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. And now she says she opposes abolishing the filibuster. But she started out not on the right wing of the Democratic Party, but to the left as a Green Party activist. For that story, we turn to Aida Chavez. She's the nation's new D.C. correspondent. She was previously a congressional reporter at The Intercept, and she's written for The Hill and The Washington Post. We reached her today in our nation's capital. Aida Chavez, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, let's start in 2002 when Kirsten Cinema was preparing to run for a seat in the Arizona State House of Representatives. What were her politics in 2002? In 2002, she actually published a letter in the Arizona Republic where she puts forth like a critique of capitalism, saying that capitalism brought us NAFTA, it brought us the World Bank, um, and 
as long as we have the system, um, like the dollar will be prioritized over working people here and working people abroad. Um, and so, you know, it couldn't be more of a stark contrast to who she is today. And how did she do in that first race that she ran in 2002? Uh, well, she did really poorly. <laughs> um, she lost. Um, she came in last place. Uh, and, uh, you know, next time she ran for office, she ran as a Democrat um, and did better. And, you know, once she was in the state legislature, um, she was actually considered one of the more uh, progressive, if not like the most progressive member of the state legislature. And in between was the start of the Iraq war, which was a big issue for her. Please explain. Yeah, a lot of her activism um, was specifically anti-war activism. She organized like over a dozen uh, rallies um, and her biggest one in Phoenix attracted thousands of people. If you look at the flyers um, that she was distributing at the time uh, for uh, the coalition of groups that were putting together these rallies, um, they're pretty explicitly against um, Bush's like imperialist fascist war is what they call it. When she went to the Arizona State Legislature, as you said, as a Democrat in 2004, and she was first elected to Congress in 2012 to represent parts of Phoenix and Tempe. Uh, And then in 2018 was when she ran for the Senate against Martha McSally. Remind us what that race was like. Yeah, so I think at all these different uh, points in her career, uh, she began shifting right. Uh, She did shift to the right um, throughout her time in the legislature. She wasn't as um, bold as she was uh, when she entered. Um, When she uh, is elected to Congress um, as a member of the House, she joins the Blue Dog Coalition. Um, That is a very like uh, pro-corporate faction of the Democratic Party. Um, They caucus together, work as a bloc. Um, But when she ran for the Senate, I think, is when you see a more drastic shift to the right in her um, in her campaign ads. Uh, she would kind of um, tout um, her hawkishness uh, and how she, you know, would support more military spending than her Republican opponent, Martha McSally. And uh, the Republicans used her left wing past against her in that race, didn't they? Yeah, they they tried to like smear her as some extreme like left wing um, activist. Um, at one point, Martha McSally accused her of treason. Um, they called her like a, a, a Prada socialist. They, they circulated pictures of her like wearing a pink tutu from back um, in her anti-war days. Uh, and so that was really uh, the messaging that they stuck to. And I think uh, it explains in part why uh, it didn't work. It just, it didn't resonate with voters because she is very clearly not a a two left-wing person. Not a Prada left, not a Prada socialist. The thing that sort of brought her prominence in our world was when she announced that she opposed including the $15 minimum wage in the COVID relief bill. Now, this, some some of, the, like Joe Manchin also joined her in this position. Her argument was that it wasn't COVID relief. Fair enough. So then the question is, well, what would you support for a federal minimum wage? She tweeted the day that she announced her opposition, and there was to the $15 minimum wage that was coming before the Senate. She tweeted 
what her argument was. I want to read this tweet and see if you can figure out what she actually supports. She says, I know the difference better wages can make, which is why I helped lead Arizona's effort to pass an indexed minimum wage in 2006 and why I strongly supported the voter-approved state minimum wage increase in 2016. Then she says, no poor person who works full-time should live in poverty. Okay. Then she says, the Senate should hold an open debate and amendment process on raising the minimum wage separate from the COVID-focused reconciliation bill. I will keep working with colleagues in both parties to ensure Americans can access good-paying jobs. Did she say there what minimum wage she would vote for? Uh, no, I mean, I found that pretty incoherent. She she uses the excuse of, you know, procedure. Um, but I think anywhere you look, you find that um, the state of Arizona overwhelmingly supports um, an increase in the minimum wage. And Joe Manchin has said he would support $11. And then there's this question of, well, when, if you did $11 immediately, would you support $12 in two years and $15 in four years, which is actually... Uh, what B Bernie Sanders' original proposal was to have a step increase. I don't think she's ever said she would support that kind of bill either, has she? Uh, not that I know of. What does she say? Uh, I know there's been a lot of of uh, activism among progressives in Arizona, especially around her opposition to the federal minimum wage bill. What what can you tell us about that? And what has she said in response to her progressive critics? Well, you know, this really angered uh, progressives and even a lot of more mainstream liberals in Arizona, um, not only because um, it's a very uh, popular measure, but because um, she not only broke with the party, she broke with her own colleague, Senator Mark Kelly, um, voted for it. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of proof that even when representing a state like Arizona, um, like there's still room, you know, to support things that the party does. Um, and so I do know that, you know, progressives and organizations, um, you know, they've been talking about uh, someone needs to primary her. Um, they've been um, having protests um, in her home state. They've been going after her with ads even. Um, there have been like a couple of um, more like progressive PACs um, launching radio ads. And so I think um, I think this is going to be a thing that people don't forget and it's going to come back to bite her. And we have to talk about filibuster reform. Um, she has said she opposes abolishing the filibuster. There's still a lot of room there for varieties of abolishing the filibuster for a single bill or for a single issue or a stepped reduction in the supermajority required to end a debate. The reason the filibuster reform is so important is to protect, to, to pass the Voting Rights Bill, SB1, which was introduced in the, in, in the Senate, Arizona is one of those states where a series of bills have introduced in the state legislature to dramatically restrict access to the ballot. Now, uh, the proposals in Arizona include removing 200,000 voters from the voter list of people who were automatically sent mail-in ballots because they did not vote by mail in two prior elections, 
Uh, they would require that mail-in ballots be postmarked the Thursday before the election in order to be counted. Uh, there's very strict ID requirements. Um, and uh, so it's a big campaign to undermine mail-in voting, which 80% of Arizonans used in the last uh, election. All of these would be blocked if this Congress passed SB1. Uh, and Kirsten Cinema is a co-sponsor of SB1, but this bill won't pass without filibuster reform. So how do you understand her opposition to reforming the filibuster? Her own political future would seem to depend on this. Um, it does. And she won't be up for re-election um, right up next, but, you know, Mark Kelly is. And, and both of them uh, won uh, by, you know, smaller margins. And so um, it, it's really both um, in their interest to, to do whatever they can um, to help, you know, get rid of the filibuster so they can pass this. And it's ironic because even as a member of the state legislature, um, she fought pretty vigorously attempts from the other party um, to impose like many of these uh, similar restrictions on voting and attempts at voter suppression. And it turns out it's not just the minimum wage and filibuster reform where she has taken these extreme positions. I learned from your piece at thenation.com that Kirsten Sinema has voted for Trump's positions about half the time she's been in the Senate. That is shocking. Yeah, um, she has um, throughout her career, and you see her citing with Republicans very often um, on issues surrounding immigration. So, you know, more recently, um, she voted to try to block uh, undocumented immigrants from receiving stimulus checks. That was, you know, a symbolic measure. Um, it wasn't something like, oh, she voted for it, now it's going to happen. But, you know, uh, considering that Latinos and progressives fought really hard to, you know, get her elected in the first place, um, they take it as a direct betrayal. For more on the contradictions in Arizona politics, read Aida Chavez's piece, How Kirsten Cinema Sold Out at TheNation.com. Aida Chavez, the new D.C. correspondent for The Nation. Thank you, Aida. Thank you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We're still thinking about those Dr. Seuss books that have been discontinued because of racist stereotypes, including the classic And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that, too. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, let's start with Mulberry Street. It was published in 1937. It's about a little boy who exaggerates what he has seen. He sees a horse pulling a cart, and he says, quote, That can't be my story. That's only a start. I'll say that a zebra was pulling that cart. What did you think of that book? I loved it. And in fact, I lo it was one of the first books I remember reading. And, it, you know, it's so funny. It's so imaginative. The drawings are so adorable. 
And it's just full of this kind of zany energy and charm. And I think it's really sad that it is being allowed to go out of print. Well, of course, Fox News and the rest of the right have been having a field day complaining about cancel culture. First, those darn leftists want to take down statues of Jefferson Davis, and now they're coming for Dr. Seuss. Is cancel culture a real problem, do you think? Well, I'm probably the only person at the nation who will tell you this, but I think it is, actually. Um, and, you know, you can you can slice and dice any event so that it looks completely different than any other event. Um, and it looks completely irrelevant to any larger point you're trying to make. But I think there is something going on. Um, and, you know, lots of little things add up. I mean, it wasn't just the horrible Confederate general statues. There was also, you know, taking getting rid of Ulysses S. Grant, um, taking Abraham Lincoln's name off of things. Um, I mean, if they're they not could, doing that, they decided not to do that in the San Francisco public did schools. They? Oh, well, that's really good to hear. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if they could take if they could change the name of Washington, D.C., because he, too, was a slave owner and a bad guy in certain ways, um, I'm sure there would be people saying, let's do it. But I don't think there were any public complaints about racism in Dr. Seuss. I, I don't remember protests or demonstrations or demands. This was strictly the decision of Dr. Seuss Enterprises, whatever that is. And, you know, I wonder, did the book really have to be withdrawn from publication? Wasn't there some other way to deal with the one Dr. Seuss drawing in this 1937 book that we today consider racist? Well, I think there probably was. Um, you know, um, there were racist uh, passages and references in the Hardy Boy books, Hardy Boys books, and also in Nancy Drew. And they just quietly edited those, edited those away. And I think that's good. Um, and I'm sure that if they had really tried, they could have done the same with the Dr. Seuss books. You know, in your column, you link to a report in the Wall Street Journal about Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, a completely fascinating story. The problems there were a Chinese character was described in a Hardy Boys book as having an evil yellow face. Criminals were routinely described as dark and swarthy, often had foreign accents. And the publisher of the Hardy Boys changed all this in 1959. No publicity. Nobody knew about it. Parents bought the books for their kids thinking they were reading the same books. Their kids were reading the same books they had read. And even the pen, the man who wrote the Hardy Boy books wasn't told that these changes were being made. He only learned about them 30 years later. So it was a different world. But 1959, they were already at work fixing the problems with the Hardy Boys. And you know, one thing about Dr. Seuss is Dr. Seuss was actually very liberal, even left. Um, he did cartoons for PM, which was a left-wing tabloid. Great idea. Didn't last too long in New York. Um, and I'm sure if he were alive and they said to him, look, you know, this is just making people unhappy. And I'm sure you didn't really mean it this way. He would have solved the problem for them. I mean, I don't think he was some hidebound old racist reactionary. <laughs> no, he was not. So the problem here in these books is 
racial and ethnic stereotyping of a kind that was very common in the 30s and 40s and 50s. What about gender stereotyping? Have you seen any of that in children's literature? Oh, my God. Children's literature is just full of it. And in fact, Dr. Seuss is full of it. I mean, <laughs> most, almost all of his major child characters, uh, the protagonist of the story, almost all of them are little boys. Um, you'll remember in The Cat in the Hat, um, the boy protagonist has a little sister, Sally, but she just sort of looks puzzled most of the time. She doesn't really <laughs> do anything. Um, there's one book that he wrote that was named for a female character, and that is Daisy Head Maisie, but she's an idiot. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, um, but, you know, I think in books you have, you take the bitter with the sweet. Um, you know, it's not one author is not the only, only writer you're going to read. His books are not the only books you're going to read. Um, and again, I'm sure if, if Dr. Seuss were here today and I had a chance to talk to him about the lack of you know, spunky female characters, um, he would say, you know, you're really onto something. Um, I'm going to sit down and write a really great book. And of course, uh, children's books today do everything they can to combat racism and gender stereotyping. I live near a children's bookstore, believe it or not, uh, and their window is full of inspiring and uplifting stories about Rosa Parks and Dolores Huerta and also Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So this is currently almost a requirement of children's bookstores, although I suspect the kids would rather read Dr. Seuss. Well, um, that could well be. I mean, I think, you know, there, there have to be a lot of different kinds of books and a lot of different heroes. And I think all these new books are great. I think it's really important that we have them. Um, but I myself like the more you know, out there imaginative books. Um, for example, I'm reading to um, my granddaughter now um, a whole bunch of Beverly Cleary books because she just died at the age of, I believe, 104. Amazing. And, uh, you know, we read all the Ramona books and now we're reading the Henry Huggins books and they are so wonderful. And what's wonderful about them is that they they're very realistic, but they're realistic in a way that both in terms of their the characters having, you know, feelings that sometimes aren't what you would, you as a parent would want your child to have, <laughs> you know, uh, Ramona, Ramona, the past, you know, she's very bossy. She's very determined. Um, and uh, Henry Huggins is sort of a dreamer and he's always getting in trouble because he's not paying attention to the thing that's right in front of him. Um, and that's very trying for his parents. Um, but um, they're also something that, you don't see a whole lot of now where kids are either hyper-privileged, which is never commented on, or they're really poor um, and struggling. And, you know, there's incest in their family and all kinds of terrible things are happening. And the Beverly Cleary character families are middle class. They're sort of lower, maybe a little lower middle class, but the, you know, the mom gets a job. Ramona's mom gets a job um, as a medical receptionist or, in, and because the, because if I remember correctly, the father who has a job as a, uh, a supermarket manager decides he wants to train as a teacher. So there's times when they have sort of money is tight and, um, you know, they don't have a huge amount of money. They don't spend a lot of money on consumer items. Um, and that's very refreshing. Uh, and 
you think it wasn't so long ago that those were normal people in children's books. And I think they're not so much now. So if we want to protect children from racist and ethnic bad things, where do you think we should start? Well, I think white children need to read a lot of books about black people because black people already read a lot of books about white people because that's mostly what it is. Um, so I'm all for diversity in terms of the choice of books. But I think the most important thing is books that have fresh and inventive language, um, which is what Dr. Seuss did so well. I mean, in so many children's books, of which I have read a great many, it's like chewing old newspaper, you know? <laughs> Just not very interesting. And even the ones like um, the Magic Treehouse books, which are immensely popular with children, where a boy and a girl go back in time to different times in history, and they sort of help you learn a little bit, bit about history. But the writing itself is not very exciting. So I think that's the most important thing. Another issue here is, do you think kids believe what they see in children's books? Are they just receiving this information? No, I don't think that that, I think that's another thing we do. And we don't just do it with children is the idea that there's this one-to-one -one correlation between something that you are given to read or watch and what you make of it. And we know from reader reception theory that people are always constructing their world. It's not so passive. And I think that the most important thing for parents to do is whatever they read their children, they should be talking to their children about it. So that when you see a picture, a, a stereotypical picture of a Chinese person eating rice with chopsticks, wearing a coolie hat or whatever, you can say, you know, this is, this is not the way Chinese people really are. You realize that, but that's how people thought of them up until very, people in America thought of them until very recently. And in fact, that's still an issue today, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, <laughs> I have to tell you, my parents who were both very radical, they let me read anything. They let me read Bible stories and they were both ferocious atheists. And my father always used to tell me, he was always constructing the world in ways that he hoped that I would go along with. He told me that my kindergarten teacher, although a very nice person, was actually on the side of the bosses. Uh, Whoa. He, I know. <laughs> he, he told me all about uh, the execution of Louis XVI of France. Bravo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was a good uh, thing. So, so, you know, my father, my parents had a lot more influence on me than anything I read. And did you believe the Bible stories that you read when you were a kid? No, no, I didn't. It didn't make me religious at all, but they were wonderful stories. And I remember some of the illustrations and, oh, I have to correct something. It wasn't Elijah that the kind widow gave the room to when he was in town with the beautiful striped blanket. and the As, as reported in your column this as week. As reported in my column, it was actually Elisha. And oh. somebody, on, somebody on Twitter said, why do people always get them to confuse? <laughs> I understand from your column, you've also been reading Greek myths to your eight-year-old granddaughter. That's some pretty strong stuff there. How's that going? Well, the Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths is just one of the most wonderful books ever written for children. Um, and it explains the myth. It tells the myth in just a very exciting and beautiful way. But it does sort of nip and tuck. So, for example... You do not learn that Aphrodite, the goddess of love 
and beauty uh, was born from the castrated testicles of Uranus. You know, I never knew that until I read your column, and I've been having nightmares about it ever since. Very disturbing. It's very <laughs> disturbing. Um, we're told the Dolaires say, no one knew where she had come from, <laughs> which I thought was, but I thought that was not only very sweet, it's also true. Where does love come from? Probably not from the castrated testicles of some, <laughs> okay. some superannuated god. Okay. And what about the other wild and frightening things that happen? You know, Pandora opening the box. Is well, that is such a common, you know, thanks to my granddaughter, I now know more about myths than I used to because we're reading a whole bunch of myths to her. But the theme of the curious woman who gets everybody into trouble is very, very common. And so you have Pandora who opens the box that's full of evils, which she's been told, don't open that box. And until only only hope is left behind. That's all that remains in the box. That's our one thing. But also the story of Adam and Eve, it's the same story. Eve was curious. What, what, what's, what, what'll happen if I eat this apple? Let's find out. Or Lot's wife. Lot's wife wants to look back. She looked back. Women don't look back. Thing. Yeah, don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> so so what does your eight-year-old granddaughter think of all these scary and horrible and things? Well, you know, she loves these stories, but it's true. I have to tell you that when we read uh, some of Grimm's fairy tales to her, those were too scary for her. There was one, I forget which one it was, that did involve visiting at night a gallows that had some dead corpses hanging from it. <laughs> that was too much. <laughs> Yeah, Grimm is one of the most horrifying. Grimm was bad. And you know who else is very grim is Hans Christian Andersen. I mean, the little match girl, she dies of cold. She's just a poor little girl and people don't buy her matches and she dies. Um, that's very disturbing. So in conclusion here, what do you think kids take away from all of this? What do you think kids take away from Dr. Seuss? Well, I hope what people take away from Dr. Seuss and from their reading generally is is a sense of a, the world is big. People are different. The English language is, has thousands of words. You should use them. I hope that it just gives people a sense of the largeness of life. And I also like the way you argue that kids can be critics. Kids can say, hey, how come all these stories are about boys? Or I don't like this part of this story. Or Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very important for parents and children to talk to each other while they read. Don't just, you know, I'm reading you this story because so, I hope you'll go to sleep soon. <laughs> <laughs> Katha Pollitt, her latest column is titled, Dr. Seuss's Mistakes Are the Least of Our Troubles. You can read it at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for sending us straight on this one. Oh, thank you for having me, John. Finally, Obama's memoir of his political rise and his first two years in office, it's called A Promised Land, and it's still number one on Amazon's bestseller list after 31 weeks. It reminds us of a time when Donald Trump barely existed in our political landscape and in our consciousness. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. It's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, where he reviewed Obama's book, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. 
The book starts early in Obama's life, and then it charts his initial political campaigns and ends about halfway through his first term with the killing of Osama bin Laden. You say Obama was lucky in life and in his political career, but it didn't look that way at the beginning. He was, you know, the black son whose father abandoned him. He was raised first by a white single mother, a grad student who took him to Indonesia, where she was doing her dissertation fieldwork. Then she sent him to live with his grandparents, his white grandparents in Hawaii. That doesn't sound lucky so far. What was the lucky part? <laughs> well, uh, I was talking more about his political career in the sense that when he ran for the Senate, uh, for example, in uh, 2004, uh, first his main opponent in the Democratic primary uh, had to withdraw because his wife had a, a brought him to court for domestic abuse. That's not good if you're running for office. And then his Republican opponent had to withdraw because um, his wife uh, charged him with uh, dragging her to sex clubs, which she didn't <laughs> want to go to. So yeah, that's that's pretty good luck if both of your main opponents have to withdraw for reasons like that. He didn't really have an opponent at the last minute. The Republicans put up Alan Keyes, who was a complete loser. So that was good luck. Uh, but on an, on a slightly higher level, maybe I don't know if you call this luck, but you know the when he was running for president in two thousand and eight, the financial crisis hit uh, maybe a month before the election which uh, further convinced people that Obama's demand for change, you remember his slogan, change you can believe in, we can believe in, it made it pretty clear some kind of change was necessary. And it also became clear very quickly that his opponent, McCain, had uh, no idea about economics and no concept of what to do. And that kind of undermined his candidacy also. You know, yes, his early life was certainly not privileged in any way. It was difficult. But then uh, he's a smart guy. He When he went to college and then law school, this was really at the moment he was positioned to take full advantage of the results of the civil rights revolution. Affirmative action, if you want to call it that, although I don't like to use that term because it suggests he wasn't really qualified. He's about as qualified as you can get. But Columbia, where he was an undergraduate, Harvard Law School, these places just hadn't accepted black people before pretty close to when Obama got in. Now they were looking for talented black students for the first time in their career. And Obama was well positioned to take advantage of that. So it's luck and skill together that uh, gets you <laughs> gets you success. Did uh, you and Obama ever cross paths when he was a student at Columbia? Well, you know, when I when he was became famous uh, or became a national figure of some kind, I raced back to my uh, my my little books, uh, listing all the students in each of the courses I taught and what grades they'd gotten. And uh, I discovered that uh, this was one of the mistakes he made in his career. He never took my course on the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, <laughs> Terrible. And in fact, his uh, so I never met or saw or at least had any knowledge of Obama. I might have bumped into him somewhere on campus, but um, his record, his. Um, transcript from Columbia was under lock and key. It probably still is. Nobody knows what courses he took. In his one of his memoirs, he does say he took Edward Said's course on the Middle East, which he didn't like very much, according to his memoir. But other than that, I don't know. He didn't. Uh, I don't know what he was doing uh, in terms of coursework at Columbia. Well, the excerpt of his book that I read was 
beautifully written, especially the parts about his family and what you call small but touching moments. I wonder if you had any favorites. Uh, yeah, he's a very good writer. And, you know, most presidential memoirs are written by uh, ghost writers, basically. Uh, it's not totally surprising. We don't tend to think of Gerald Ford or Reagan uh, as uh, literary stylists, really. Uh, I read somewhere that uh, Donald Trump has not ever read a book, including those that he supposedly wrote. But uh, he's a, Obama's a very good uh, writer. And yes, these little, the, the shifting back and forth between the family life and public issues is done quite well in the book, I thought. You know, one uh, little episode that I did mention was he, uh, there were these two African-American butlers who took care of the White House and they served dinner to the family. And they said, they stood, you know, after he was in order, they came in like tuxedos, formal address to serve dinner. And uh, Obama, after a while, Obama said, you know, you don't really have to do that. We don't get dressed up for dinner that way, usually. Uh, you could just wear more casual attire. And one of them said, no, no, we want to make sure you are treated exactly the same as all the previous presidents. All huh. the white presidents have been served dinner with by guys in tuxedos. Obama should be served dinner that way also. I thought that was a revealing little thing on these two guys who worked in the White House for many years. We all know Obama was our first black president. It was a huge historical achievement and, frankly, a scary one. We all knew how many people hated him for being black and that some wanted to see him killed. What does he say about the, the threats to his life? He talks a little about that, but not much. What he what he says was that uh, really almost nothing. He says that black voters in the primary, of course, you remember 2008, he versus Hillary Clinton, the whole primary campaign for the Democratic nomination. And he said that he felt that the beginning black voters were worried for him. They almost didn't want him to win because they were sure he'd be assassinated like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and many other people had been. Once they came to the conclusion that he might actually win and that many white people were behind him, uh, black voters, remember he won the Iowa caucuses in 2008, which Iowa has like three or 4% black population. So you obviously have to appeal to a broader segment of the voting population there. Uh, but he doesn't really talk about threats to his life. He does mention somewhere that the Secret Service said that he'd had more, th that more threats to his life than any other president that they'd encountered. But he doesn't talk about fear. He doesn't talk about his family being frightened. Uh, of course, their life was restricted. Like any president, his daughters had burly, you know, Secret Service men going to school with them every day, grade school. Uh, this uh, cuts into spontaneity, I suppose. Yes. But um, he doesn't talk about that. In fact, one of the things I found odd about the book, although I like the book, is he doesn't really talk about what it meant to be the first black president. Mm. What kind of constraints did that put on him? You know, he was very cagey or, you know, about talking about race at all. He seems to have concluded that if he talked about race, people would present it. Of course, there was his famous speech during the campaign after the Reverend Jeremiah Wright right. incident where he directly addressed the nation, i.e. white people, about yeah. race in America. What does he say about that speech, which was very highly regarded at the time? What do you say about that speech? There are a number of times where Obama talks about talking about race. That is one big example. And the second one is with uh, 
Henry Louis Gates Jr. when he was uh, arrested, remember trying to break into his own house because he couldn't find the key. And uh, Obama said, well, that was stupid of the police to arrest a guy walking with a cane. He didn't look like a burglar, really, you know. Obama says, you know, I couldn't believe anyone would take this seriously. Why should anyone care that I said that uh, it was stupid with him or that Jeremiah Wright, yes, I was in the church that he was the pastor, but I didn't make these speeches that Jeremiah Wright did about racism in America. But he quickly discovered, maybe he was naive, that um, these incidents just grew and grew and grew. He couldn't get away from them. And uh, many white people seem to resent these things happening. And so he had to address them. He addressed the, um, the right. He says he wanted to explain why black people are angry sometimes, but he also wanted to explain why white people feel aggrieved. It wasn't quite clear what they were aggrieved about, except the fact that you had a black guy running for president. But this is typical Obama. He's trying to be the middle ground. He's trying to balance both sides, appeal to both sides. That, that's how he presents himself throughout the whole book. That's his self-image, the, guy, the middle ground guy with ideals, but actually you can't really implement those ideals very much uh, because you're always seeking consensus uh, uh, and trying to satisfy everybody. Personally, I thought that Jeremiah Wright's speech was not a very good one. I thought it, that it sort of created an equivalent between black responses to racism in American history, uh, equivalent, and then white responses to being accused of racism, it's not an equivalent, you know, it, it's, it's a little tone deaf about the realities of American history. That succeeded. He does say about the Skip Gates thing, where he then invited the policeman and Gates, you know, to have a beer at the White House, and they're all very chummy. But he says his popularity ranking rating as president suffered its biggest hit after the Gates uh, incident. Mm, amazing. Yes, that he really had to be careful saying or doing anything about race. It will be interesting in the next volume how he deals with the Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Remember, at a press conference vis-a-vis Trayvon Martin, who was killed, he says, you know, all of us black parents have to talk to our children about how to deal with issues like this, how to deal with police, how to deal with assault. And a lot of people say, no, what do you mean? Black people aren't in any danger from police. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, and again, he thought that was so obvious that uh, how could anyone object to that? But in fact, uh, a lot of white people resented it. So uh, I can well understand why he tried not to say very much about race, although some black people were disappointed that he didn't really confront more directly the racism in the society. In writing this book, Obama knows how disappointed progressives like us are with what he actually accomplished. And one of the main purposes of this book is to respond to his progressive critics. What's his general defense of himself? His general sense is that they didn't know what they were talking about. Obama comes across, I mean, as I said, I like the book. I think it's revealing in many ways, well-written. But Obama comes across with a pretty thin skin. When progressives criticize him, they're they're carping. They're complaining too much. They're utopian. You know, they want everything. They don't know how to deal with politics. Politics is the art of the possible. He's the pragmatist, which is funny because he ran as an idealist. He didn't run as a guy, well, I'm going to find the middle ground. That wasn't his campaign slogan. He just doesn't seem to like the progressives in his own party. 
the single payer people or the people who wanted a public option or the people who wanted more action against the banks uh, and Wall Street in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Basically, his position is I did whatever what was possible. And therefore, these guys are just uh, unrealistic. Now, you know, that's a totally circular argument. How do you know that what Obama did was the only thing that was possible? Well, it's because Obama did it. And he's a pragmatist. But there are a lot of places in which he wasn't that pragmatic. I mean, he came in thinking he could you know, work with the Republicans, remember everything would be bipartisan, and he'd get all sorts of support. He didn't, none, of, none of that worked out. He was completely unrealistic in his assessment of what the balance would be between uh, working with the Republicans and them just trying to undermine everything he did. So a lot of the book is couched <laughs> in terms of uh, criticism of those who uh, in his own party, who would disaffect it. Once in a while, he will step back, not very often, and say, like, particularly on the, the dealing with the financial crisis, maybe I should have been bolder, he says at one time. That, that's a very unusual thing in this book. The book's 700 some odd pages. Very, very rarely is he introspective in that way, or does he, in the way the book is written, it's in the moment. 2010, 2011, 2012. It's not Obama looking back on the moment from eight years later and saying, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? He's not thinking it through that way. He's trying to tell you what it was like to be there and make decisions at that moment. That's legitimate, but I think a lot of people would like to know what Obama thinks today about yeah. how this period of his presidency actually uh, you know, worked out. Well, as I said at the opening, one of the most fascinating things about this book is it's about a period when Donald Trump barely existed on the political landscape. He does appear at the end of the book. During the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf, Obama says Trump called to suggest that he be put in charge of plugging the well to stop the leak. And when Trump was told that the well was almost sealed, then Trump offered to build a beautiful ballroom on the White House grounds. And this was before Trump endorsed the birther lie or took any of those stands. How does Obama treat all this? Well, of course, uh, <laughs> at the time, he must have thought this was just absurd. And now looking back, uh, anything Trump does is an indication of Trump's utter egomania. Eric Foner. Thank you, Eric. This was great. Nice to talk to you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.